Well, John, is uh, God's Spirit-inspired message to us, so let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you that uh, you do guide us, and we thank you for giving us your word that we can know the truth about you. Please help us to understand your word today. Help us to put into practice in our lives what we learn. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who can you believe? Who can you believe? When it comes to God and religion, there are so many opinions out there. So many people claim to have the truth. How do you know who to trust? Our culture? Our culture gives us a pretty clear message. Life is all about finding happiness and comfort. If there is a God, he makes no practical difference to our lives. All views should be tolerated. Any claims to absolute truth are arrogant and intolerant. That's our culture. Then you've got other religions. Again, all kinds of views about God. Some say there's one God, Islam, Judaism. Some say there are lots of gods, Hinduism. Some say everything is God, pantheism. Even on the issue of Jesus. You ask a Jew, they'll say he died, never rose again. Ask a Muslim, they'll say, probably, he never died, just went straight to be with God. You've got other religions. Uh, then, just to add to the confusion, even you get to Christianity and you've got all these different brands. Roman Catholics say one thing, Eastern Orthodox people say another thing, and then Protestants, I mean, there are hundreds of different kinds of Protestants, they all reckon they have the truth, and all they seem to do is argue. That's not even taking into account the cults. Mormons, JWs, Christadelphians, and so on. So many ideas, so many opinions, so many claims to truth. It makes your head spin. And then there's Warren and me. Each week you show up to church and you listen to us rabbit on about our ideas, as if we know the truth, as if we can tell you what to believe and how to live. It's so confusing. Who do you believe? How can you know who to believe? Well, the churches that John was writing to were facing a crisis a little bit like ours. They were hearing some different ideas, conflicting ideas, different opinions. It was getting confusing. Now, let me explain the context because it will help us to understand what John is saying. Let's, let's understand the context. So far in John's letter, he's been telling us some great news. Great news about Jesus Christ. Now, Christ, as you may know, it's not Jesus' surname. Okay? It's not, you know, he could have been Jesus Reed, but in fact he's Jesus Christ, something like that. All right? it, it's not a surname, it's a title. It means, uh, it means anointed. To be anointed, it refers to a special Jewish ceremony where they poured oil onto a person's head and that was symbolising that they were being set apart for a special role. Now, over time, this word anointed... In Greek, it's Christ. In Hebrew, it's something like Messiah. It, it came to be used for one special person. God made some promises. He promised that he would anoint a man in the family line of King David as king of the whole world. God said he would anoint him with his Holy Spirit and make him ruler of the, of the entire world forever. Now, on your outline... I've put an example of one such promise from the prophet Isaiah. Can you see where I am, left-hand side there? It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, 
and I've left my little explanatory note in there, Jesse was King David's dad. Uh, From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Okay. With righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the uh, breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, so as you move into New Testament times, around about the time of Jesus, there's this expectation that the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One will come and he will judge and he will rule the whole world. Christ isn't Jesus' surname. No way. It's an amazing claim to make about him. To say that Jesus is the Christ, it's saying, John is saying that this bloke that he knew, this carpenter from Nazareth who was crucified, is the king of the entire world. But that's what John is saying. The Jesus that he saw, the Jesus that he heard with his ears, the Jesus that he touched with his hands, is the Christ. If you jump back with me to chapter 1 and verse 3, you can see it there. John says, chapter 1, verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now John has also told us that this Christ is now with God. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Christ would be raised up to the right hand of God and John says it's happened. He's with God speaking to the Father in our defence. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If anybody does sin, chapter 2, verse 1, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. There's the Christ with God, speaking to God at the right hand of God. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed ruler of the world, now with God. That's what John is saying. But in the Old Testament, there's another kind of string of thought. The Old Testament reveals something else about the Christ. It reveals that there are people who will oppose the Christ, people who will be enemies of the Christ. The Bible never seems to worry terribly much about it because it can't last. God, the Old Testament says, will defeat the enemies of the Christ. A couple more references on your outline. First from Psalm 2. You see where I am now, Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand... And the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Same word, anointed one, the Christ. How does God respond to everybody ganging up against the anointed one? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Oh, look at this next one from Psalm 110. The Lord, this is King David speaking, says to my Lord, this is the Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your people. All right, you with me with these two lines of Revelation? The Old Testament predicts that there will be a Christ, an anointed ruler. Uh, There will be people who oppose the Christ, enemies of the Christ, but it can't last. God will make his enemies his footstool. Well, at the time John was writing, there were people who were opposing the Christ opposing Jesus the Christ. John calls them antichrists. Now, this word antichrist comes with a lot of baggage today. Um, In fact, antichrist is a word that only John uses, and only in this letter and his next letter. 
By the time we've got through 1 and 2 John, we will have seen everything that is ever written in the Bible about the Antichrist. Uh, in fact, we'll have seen anything, everything that has ever been written in the entirety of ancient literature about the Antichrist. Uh, you will not find Antichrist anywhere else. It's, it's probably a word that John himself has made up. And so as we're trying to work out the meaning of the word, we've got to actually see it from 1 John, the only place you'll find it. Anyway, do you get our context? John has been teaching that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed ruler, the anointed king of the world. That's what John's readers have always believed. It's, it's what he started telling them. It's how they became Christians in the first place. But now they're having to deal with these opponents of Christ, these antichrists, these people who are trying to lead them astray. It's a potentially confusing situation. All right, all that background in mind, let's have a look at what John says. Uh, the first thing John has to say about this situation is what the Old Testament was saying it cannot last. God's Christ cannot be opposed forever. The fact that Christ has been installed at the right hand of God, it means that any antichrist, enemy, any enemies of God will soon be made his footstool. The, the nations may try to oppose the Christ, but God will laugh them to scorn that they will soon be destroyed. John says to his readers, it's the last hour. If antichrist is coming, if antichrist have come, if there are people around opposing God's Christ, the days of this world are numbered. It is an unsustainable situation. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Have a look with me. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Last Christmas, my children were given a little plastic ladybird. It's about, uh, I don't know, it's about so big, and it's got six sticky feet. And what you do, you throw it up on the ceiling, and for a while, it sticks there. Uh, my kids, a couple of weeks ago, threw the ladybird up in the dining room. It landed on the ceiling, straight above where my son Daniel sits at the table, and it clung on with its feet for dear life. Uh, over the next couple of minutes, one by one, the feet let go. And so there it was, clinging with one foot to the ceiling. And there it has stayed. For days. <laughs> for weeks. Uh, every meal we have, this ladybird is just hanging there from the ceiling, like a, a sword of Damocles above Daniel's head <laughs> at the table each day. Uh, my kids, they've got all these games now. We, we turn two fans on in the dining room while we're eating, and the ladybird kind of wobbles like this. Uh, so far, though, it's still hanging there. Now, we laugh about it, but there's a tension about it as well because it can't last. The, the weight of the ladybird is pulling down. The, the gravity is exerting its inexorable force. The ladybird cannot stay up there forever. It must fall. The fact that there are people opposing Jesus means that this world cannot last. Do you get the point? It's an intolerable situation. It's an unsustainable situation. It can't keep going. God will, God must soon bring it to an end. The day will soon come. The day must soon come when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. If there are people opposing the Christ, it is the last hour. It cannot last. Their days and the days of this world are numbered. Do you see John's point? Well, he talks more about these antichrists. He says that they were part of the church, part of their fellowship. They gave every indication of being Christians, but their faith wasn't genuine. 
their faith was not genuine and that is proved by the fact that they've now chucked it in. By the way, they've abandoned Jesus and his church. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. All right, what have we got so far? Uh, There are these antichrists opposing uh, the message that Jesus is the Christ. They've left the church. You wouldn't want to be them, though. Their days are numbered. John now turns to his readers. And he talks about how they are themselves Christs. They themselves have been anointed by God. It's the same word group. He says that these readers have a chrisma. Uh, They've been Christed so that they know the Lord. They know the truth. Now again, I don't want to be boring, but there's a fair bit of background to what John is saying here. And I think if we're going to understand it properly, we need to get some of this background. Way back hundreds of years before Jesus, um, God made a promise to his people. It was in our second reading today. God promised that he would dwell in his people's hearts, work in his people's hearts so that they would know him. They wouldn't need anyone to teach them, they would know him. I've put it on your outline. Again, from Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Okay, God promises he's going to come into his people, transform them so that they know him. Um, in another place in the, in the Old Testament, we find out that God will do this by giving them his Holy Spirit. That's on your outline there from Ezekiel. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Okay, there's this Old Testament expectation. God will put his spirit on his people so they'll know him. Then when we get into the New Testament... Uh, we see Jesus make a promise. <clears throat> we see him make a promise to his apostles. He promises that God's spirit will work in them so that they'll accurately teach the truth about him. There will be a spirit-inspired message about Jesus, a true message about Jesus. On your outline again from John's Gospel, Jesus says to his apostles, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, see where I'm on the right-hand side now, he'll guide you into all truth. Okay, there's the promise to the apostles to be a spirit-inspired apostolic word And then the New Testament tells us that, as was promised, God's Spirit comes onto those who hear the message of the apostles so that we know it's true, so that we put our trust in Jesus, so we do come to know God. On your outline from 1 Thessalonians, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Or just one more reference. Here you see that it's the gift of the Spirit that is our anointing from 2 Corinthians. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, that is, set his seal of ownership on us and put his Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Okay. So with that background in mind, we can see what this anointing is that John's talking about. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit, promised in the Old Testament, given to people who believe the Spirit-inspired apostolic message about Jesus being the Christ, 
so that we can know the truth and come into relationship with God. Let me put it more simply. This anointing, it's when you get the Holy Spirit and become a Christian. John says to his readers, you've got it. You have this anointing, and so you know the truth. Verse 20. But you have an anointing, a Christing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Okay, let me summarize again. Come back to me. Antichrists are around. Their days are numbered, but John's readers have been Christed, anointed, so they know the truth. John goes on to talk more about the Antichrist. He says, by falsely denying that Jesus is the Christ, they alienate themselves from God. They, they cannot have God as their father. Verse 22. Who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Again, you, you don't want to be one of these people, do you? An Antichrist. The sort of Damocles is hanging over your head. You do not have God as your Father. And so now John gives his instruction. Here's, here's his take-home message. Here's his application point. Here's what he wants us to do. He says that his readers... He says we need to stick with the message we heard at the start. The message that his readers got from John and from the other eyewitnesses, that's what will bring them to eternal life. Verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, even eternal life. John says it again a different way. He says there are people out there trying to lead you astray, these antichrists. What you've got to do is stick with your anointing. That is, hold on to the message that the Holy Spirit anointed you to believe in the first place. Hold on to the apostolic message. Hold on to the original Jesus. That way when he does return to clean up his enemies, you can be confident. Verse 26. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you... The anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. That's Jeremiah 31, isn't it? You don't need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him, in Jesus. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Okay, a few concepts there that took a bit of explaining, a bit of background, but basically it's a pretty simple message, isn't it? There were these ex-church members around, they were denying that Jesus is the Christ, trying to lead people astray, antichrist, causing confusion. So John says, stick with the original, stick with the original spirit-inspired apostolic message about Jesus, the one you came to believe by the anointing of God's Holy Spirit. He says to his readers, you don't want to mess around with these antichrists, their days are numbered. They do not have God as their father. It's only those who trust in the original message about Jesus who have God as father and eternal life. So John says, stick with the original. Reasonably clear? Okay, well, let's come back to where we started. We live in this world full of ideas, full of opinions about God, our culture, other religions, different brands of Christianity, even our own church. It's confusing. It can be hard to know who to believe. 
So who do you believe? Who do you believe? Do you believe our culture? Do you believe the other religions or different churches or denominations or Christian teachers? Do you believe me? Do you believe Warren? Who do you believe? Well, we shouldn't believe any of them, should we? In fact, we shouldn't even believe ourselves. Just because you think something about God doesn't make it right, doesn't make it true. None of us can be trusted. All of us are sinners. We are all tempted by our sin to distort the truth about God. And none of us have been eyewitnesses to Jesus. None of us have seen and heard and touched Jesus in the way that the apostles did. Who should we believe then? We should believe the apostles. We should believe the original, apostolic, spirit-inspired message about Jesus. And of course the great news is that message has been preserved for us in writing. We've got it in our Bibles, in our New Testaments. Who should we believe? We should believe the Bible. And how do we know? How do we know that's what we should believe? Well, there are lots of good reasons. Um, The apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They were in a position to know the truth and they had nothing to gain by lying. They were willing to suffer and die for their testimony. There's also Jesus' promise to them. Jesus promised them, I will give you the Holy Spirit. He will lead you into truth. There are good reasons to believe the apostolic message. But ultimately, and I have to admit it pains me to say this, it's more than just a rational thing. Right? It's, it's not less than rational, but it's more than rational. In the end, why do we believe the Bible? Well, we just know it's true, don't we? We know it in ourselves. We know that what the Bible says is right. We know that the Bible is the truth. How? We just know it. Friends, that's the anointing. That's the anointing John is talking about. That's the work of God's Spirit in us. And so amidst all the conflicting ideas, all the confusion, all the doubt, here's the rock we can stand on. We should believe the Bible. By the power, the anointing of God's Holy Spirit, we should believe God's Spirit-inspired Word. All right, I want to finish with just a couple of practical implications of what we've seen here in John. Just two practical implications. Uh, First, this means we've got to keep the Bible at the centre of our Christian lives, doesn't it? We need to keep the Bible at the centre. Church on Sundays, it's not about me or Warren spouting our ideas. If it is, give us the sack. What we need to be doing is exposing what the Bible says, showing you what the Bible says, and you need to keep reading it and testing that what we say is in fact the same as the Spirit-inspired apostolic message. Uh, Bible study during the week. It's not a time for us to bandy around our opinions and our ideas and our prejudices. It's the time to dig into the truth of what God says in the Bible. It's why we keep insisting as Bible study leaders, yeah, nice answer, show it to me from the passage. All right? We want to see what the Bible is actually saying. That means we should also be reading the Bible ourselves, day by day, by ourselves in our families. We need to test everything we hear or see by reference to the Bible, Bible at the centre. Okay, that's the first practical implication. But the second one, the second one is that we need to be careful. We need to be careful as we interpret the Bible. Now, we have an anointing. 
by the power of God's spirit, we know that God's word is true. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our interpretation of the Bible is true. We are all sinners. We love to read the Bible in a way that justifies us. We love to read the Bible in a way that justifies our ideas and wins our arguments and justifies our actions and, and our sin. And so we need each other. We need to read the Bible in community. We need to be reading Christian books and Christian teachers and Christian history. We need to be listening to each other in Bible study. Not because what we will read or hear is necessarily right, but because it could be right and you could be wrong. Do you get it? It could be right and you could be wrong as, as we listen or read, even perhaps because this could happen in a sermon even. You could recognise that the other person has understood the Bible better than you have. It can correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness. Do you see the point? Because none of us can be trusted, we need to work together. It's the same principle as democracy, isn't it? You can't trust anybody with power, so give as, as, as little power to any one person as you possibly can. All right? We should work together in community to try to understand what God is actually saying in his word. What is the author's intention? And then to help each other be accountable to obey. Well, friends, God has been very kind to us, hasn't he? Amidst all the confusion, all the wrong ideas, he's given us his word and he's anointed us with his spirit so we don't need to be confused. We don't have to be led astray. We can stick with it, stick with the original truth. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the way you anointed him with your spirit. And we thank you that he poured out your spirit onto the apostles and guided them into truth so that what we have in our Bibles is the true message about you and about Jesus that we can know and trust and live by. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for anointing us with your spirit so that we can know it's true. And we thank you for giving us each other that we can keep challenging and correcting and uh, helping each other. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your word will dwell richly within us as we teach and admonish one another in all truth that we might live as your thankful, godly people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.